If you have your Bibles, if you'll take and turn with me to Esther chapter 6. Esther chapter 6. It is good to see even more of you here today than last week. It's good to be together, and it does my heart uh, really good to see you guys worshiping the Lord and and being here together with the body of Christ. Esther chapter 6. As you're turning, uh, most of you probably will recognize the name and are familiar with uh, Steve Harvey. Uh, he's a, a comedian, businessman, author. He wrote some books and an entertainer. He, he started his career uh, in the 80s doing stand-up comedy and uh, hosted uh, Showtime at the Apollo. Uh, he, he has his own TV show or had his own TV show on the WB, the Steve Harvey show. He's written, uh, I think, four books. He's been the game show host of The Family Feud for a decade. Uh, By most people's standards, a a widely successful man. Uh, But perhaps the thing that that Steve Harvey will be most remembered for, and many of you will probably remember this as well, was his snafu that happened uh, when he hosted the 2015 Miss uh, Universe pageant. If you are not familiar with that, uh, Harvey, it was the end of the, the, the pageant and the moment that everyone had been waiting for. He's about to reveal the winner uh, and first runner-up of the, the most prestigious beauty contest in the world. And uh, he takes the envelope, takes the card. He's about to reveal the name. He reads, Miss Universe is Miss Columbia. And the, the nation of Columbia, they're cheering, they're shouting. She's just in awe that she's won this thing. Except for Steve Harvey came back up and says, uh, okay, folks, uh, I have to apologize. I've made a terrible mistake. The real winner is Miss Philippines. And you try to build it up and make it just exciting, as exciting for her. And they had to, they had to go and, and take the crown off of Miss Columbia. And, 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 and he's, he'd read the card backwards. And it was this, this terribly awkward and embarrassing thing that they had to do on live TV. Some have actually called it the worst mistake in uh, live TV awards show history. Um, certainly one of those, those moments that are just cringeworthy. Uh, a monumental reversal, all right, uh, with all the awkwardness and humiliation that you can imagine that would come with it. Esther chapter 6 has a reversal of epic proportions. I mean, the, such, the kind of reversal that would make Steve Harvey blush. I mean, the, the, the reversal that we're going to read about in the text this morning is incredible. And what I want us to see as we study the text is that, that God is doing this, right? This could be maybe one of the most ironic or, uh, if you want to call it comical, uh, chapters in all of Scripture, the way that the writer writes this and puts this story together for us, uh, uh, recounting to us history and the history of God's people If you remember Haman, the evil mastermind behind the annihilation of the Jews, he wanted to be honored by all, especially that stinking Jew named Mordecai. I mean, he he could not stand this guy and the fact that he wouldn't bow and honor him when he walks through the streets. Well, Spoiler alert, as we're about to see in chapter 6, Mordecai is about to be honored by all, and Haman, the evil mastermind, is going to be leading the call to honor him in his wildest nightmares. Haman would have never imagined that he, that Haman, would be used to honor the one that refused to honor him. And, uh, and so as we walk through this story, if you've, if you've not been with us in our study of Esther, 
let me recap real quickly. I'm not going to give you a detailed recap that it would take too long this morning. But what we saw last week was that Haman, this evil guy uh, that wanted to annihilate the Jews, he attended a feast that King Xerxes and, and, and Esther alone went to. Esther had prepared it, and we, we were expecting Esther to, to make her request, right? The king says he would give her anything up to half the kingdom, this, 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 this language of incredible generosity. And we expect her to make that request and to intercede on behalf of her people, the Jewish people, but instead she asked for a second feast. Says, hey, tomorrow, if you're really serious about giving me my request, why don't you come to a second feast? Well, unbeknown to her, at the end of that first feast, Haman returns home, evil guy, and uh, on his way home, he sees Mordecai again. He has another run-in with the Jew, Mordecai, and Mordecai's still not bowing. (laughs) He's at the city gate, and he's still not showing honor to Haman, and Haman is livid. He is so mad. So he goes home, and his friends are gathered. He gathers all all of his friends and his wife, and he, he does that to tell them how great and glorious he is, and they counsel him to go and just kill Mordecai. Have Mordecai killed, and so he listens, and he goes and constructs these, these gallows that are 75 feet tall to hang Mordecai on, just so that he can go to his feast, the second feast, with a good state of mind, with, 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 with no anger or, 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 or uh, frustration or distraction, right? So just go kill Mordecai so you can enjoy your party, is basically the idea. And he follows through, and th- think about this too as we jump into this next chapter. Esther didn't know about Haman's plan to kill her cousin Mordecai, right? She's clueless. She couldn't do anything. Mordecai doesn't even know about this plan and these gallows that are being built to, to, to hang him. And so it's not like he could get out of Dodge and, you know, get out, of the, get out of town before they come looking for him. They're clueless. They have no idea. So the two protagonists in our story, they can do nothing. They're, they're absolutely uh, helpless here to do anything themselves to save Mordecai's life. Not only could they do nothing, they were, they were clueless. They were sleeping in the middle of the night, not knowing that death was looming. Not just death 12 months down the road for all the Jewish people that was looming, but, but literally the next day, death was looming for Mordecai. And they, they can't do anything about it. They're clueless. But you know who wasn't clueless? God. God wasn't clueless. And it's incredible that, that while Esther and Mordecai are sleeping, God is not sleeping. And not only was God not sleeping, God was making sure that he was uh, not the only one that was awake that night. And that's where our text begins. Look at it with me, Esther chapter 6. I'll go ahead and give you uh, the outline. It'll be on the screens for you. It's a real simple outline to follow this morning. Three scenes from this chapter and then three points of application from this chapter. So look at scene number one with me. Insomnia in Susa's Citadel. Tried to make them all tongue twisters for you just to give you difficulty saying them when you're in growth group together. You're welcome. Uh, So scene number one, insomnia in Susa's citadel. Verse one. On that night, the king could not sleep. Stop right there. That's not an uncommon thing, right? Kings have sleepless nights. They are human after all, uh, with a lot of pressure and stress on them. So it's not uncommon that a king would have a sleepless night. But what is noteworthy is what is causing this sleeplessness. Look Look at your Bible with me. Look what it says. What does it say there? What's causing his sleeplessness? doesn't say anything. It says nothing there. We're not given, and that's precisely the point, right? Like in the Bible, when we hear of kings not being able to sleep, it usually tells us why. I'll give you a couple examples. King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he's kept awake at night at a key moment because God had sent him a dream that kept him awake. Uh, Daniel chapter 2, you swear you see that. I'll give you another example. Darius, 
Xerxes' father. He also was kept awake. He had a sleepless night because he's so troubled by Daniel's fate. If you remember, Daniel's in the lion's den, right? And he's, he's kept awake because he was worried about Daniel. That's Daniel chapter 6. Now here, with Xerxes, there's no indication. He's just awake. He can't sleep. There's no reason, no apparent reason for his sleeplessness except that there's a sovereign God who's up to something and God is doing something to deliver his people and so Xerxes can't catch any Z's, right? God's sovereignty doesn't end there. If you keep going in the text, also note that God's sovereignty directed the king, Xerxes, to his choice of alternative activities in this sleepless evening, right? Uh, He had no late night TV, had no Netflix that he could binge watch, but that doesn't mean that he didn't have a, uh, options, right, for, for late night uh, sleeplessness. I mean, he had food and drink in abundance that he could have easily called for. He had dancing girls to uh, entertain him. He had uh, two harems of, of women that he could call upon at his disposal for sexual pleasure. We see him already doing those sorts of things. And yet, with all those options on the table, he chooses to read from governmental records, <laughs> Stories of his own reign, his own time as king of Persia. Continue reading with me. You see that. It says, he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. Now, I'm not sure if you've ever read any chronicles of ancient Near Eastern kings and their rule. It's not exactly riveting material. Like, you can go find these. You can Google them and read uh, these kind of chronicles from kings that, are, that were kept in these ancient times. And it's basically so-and-so defeated this country, and so-and-so plundered these goods, and so-and-so gave this prince all of this land for his uh, allegiance and his alliance. It's, it's really not compelling stuff. It's really pretty boring. It's, it's, it's actually terribly boring. I mean, about as compelling as reading tax regulations, or worse, um, the, the statistics and box scores from all of Alabama's past national championships. I mean, it's that kind of boring, just real sleeper-type stuff. And maybe that's the point. Maybe he's having this read to him because it'll put him back to sleep. I mean, there's nothing, you know, maybe more, more sleep-inducing than hearing a monotone reading of your own life story, right? You know how this story's going to end. But in the midst of that reading, again, a sovereign God is at work because look at the part of the Chronicles that they read and look at what it says. Xerxes found himself jolted wide awake, right, when the scribe gets to the part about Mordecai, the Jew that saved his life. So a little bit of backstory if you've not been with us in Esther. Mordecai, the Jew, the cousin of Esther, hears about a, an assassination plot and he goes and he informs Esther and she tells the king and these two guys are found out and they're, they're killed. They're executed for trying to kill the king. Well, you see in verse 2, if you continue with me, exactly what happens. He says, And it was found, written, how Mordecai had told about uh, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King, Xerxes, uh, king Ahasuerus, King Xerxes. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the, young king's, and the king's young men who attended him said, Nothing's been done for him. So a little bit of backstory here. Persian kings were famous, like world famous, for their diligence in rewarding those that helped them, that aided them, right, in their kingship. Uh, just not even in, in the Bible, but in, in secular history. This is, this, is, this is a common thing that you see, that, that, it, was, that was, it was the king's duty, but also a joy almost to get to reward folks that did things like this. It was good for public relations. It was a way to ensure that people had your back and that if anybody else tried to do this, hey, let's go have the king's back because look at how that guy got rewarded. And so this, this was a thing they did. 
So when he hears the attendant say, nothing's been done for Mordecai, he's floored. He's shocked. What do you mean nothing's been done? Like, who's going to save the king's life next time? If nothing was done for that guy, why would anybody be motivated to save my life next time? And so you can almost picture him, right? The king, King Xerxes, leaping out of bed because everything Xerxes did seemed to be impulsive, right? He's making these quick, rash decisions. So you can almost just picture him when he hears this, leaping out of bed as the sun's coming up, as, as it's dawning, and he's, what do we do to rectify this situation? Well, how could he do that? How could he do anything to rectify this situation? Because as we've seen, Xerxes, he does nothing without his cronies telling him what to do, without the advice of his council they often give terrible advice, instructing him how he should act and what decisions he should make. And so he asked for his servants. Look at verse 4. The king said, who's in the court? In other words, which of my counselors is around to tell me what to do? That leads to scene two. Scene number two. See irony in the city square. See irony in the city square. So the king, he just asked, who's in the court? All right. Who's in the court? Because he needed advice on how to honor Mordecai. Now, normally, at this time in the morning, it wouldn't have been uncommon if no one would have been in the court. But let me remind you, there's a sovereign God working. And there is somebody in the court on this particular morning. It's not just anyone. It's exactly who God had placed there. Who's in the court? Haman. Of all people, Haman. Look at verse 4. It says, Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak with him, Now, to speak with the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. Now, Haman, remember, we're at in the the story, in the text, Haman's there for an entirely different purpose. You remember why he's there. He's there because he wants the king's permission to go and have Mordecai hanged because the dude continues to refuse to honor him. So he's intending on speaking with the king about this hanging so that he could get on with the rest of his day, so that he can enjoy the feast that evening with the king and queen. So when Haman gets this news, hey, the king's willing to see you this early in the morning, he's probably shocked. He's probably like feeling really lucky, like, wow, I was granted permission to see the king so early. I, we can get this thing done quickly and get on about my day. But it wasn't a lucky moment after all. If you look in the text as we continue, it wasn't lucky, but it was providential. And in this wonderful twist of irony, this beautiful twist of irony, the king asks Haman in verse 6. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And the king asks this, but he leaves out one tiny little detail, right? You notice the detail that's left out. Who exactly is this man that the king wants to honor? The king didn't say, right? And it's fitting, isn't it? I mean, you think about, there's obvious ironies in this chapter, but here's one of those subtle ones that you might miss if you're just reading quickly through the chapter. Think about how fitting this is that the king leaves out the name of the man that he wants to honor, just like Haman left out the ethnicity of the people that he wanted to annihilate. Remember when he goes before the king in chapter 3, and he says, hey, king, there's somebody that's dishonoring you and not obeying your laws, which was a lie. He didn't even tell him who the man was or who the, the ethnicity of people were that he was wanting to kill. And here the irony is the king does the same thing. He doesn't tell him. It's Mordecai. And so the king leaves out the name, but Haman was quick to assume his own name there. That's what happens as we continue to read. Look at verse 6. And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? You see the pride and the arrogance there, uh, just the self-centeredness. This light bulb goes off in Haman's mind, right? Like, this is my moment. Like, Esther had her moment, and he was privy to that, right? Remember, he's been at the first feast, and so he heard and he sees the king say to Esther, like, 
anything you want, I'll grant it, up to half the kingdom. And now Haman is sort of thinking like, this is my moment. Like, this is my moment. I can ask for anything. Now, unlike Esther, he shows no subtlety here. All right? he, he just dives off into the request head first. He didn't even start with the sort of the customary, if it seems good to the king, right? Like that's how Esther frames her request for a feast. Right? If it seems good to the king, join me for a feast that I've prepared. No, Haman has none of that. He just starts off and lets Xerxes have it. He just says the, re- the request. He gives it exactly what he would expect um, would be done to him for, for him, for Haman, And you see the idolatry of pride and public recognition in his heart. Again, week after week, we've seen this. And I think, before we even go any further in the text, like, let's just step out here for a moment and just say, like, I think so often we want to align ourselves with Esther, right? Or we want to align ourselves with the person that God's using in the text. Don't let that be your knee-jerk reaction. Like, see yourself as Haman first and foremost, that we are the rebel. We are the one with idolatry in our hearts that needs to be killed daily, right? And so when we see this week after week in Haman, ask the Lord to show it to you in, in your own heart, right? Like, that's where we need to be identifying and aligning first and foremost, knowing that we need the grace of God in our lives. And so that's where, that's where Haman's idol starts to, to rear its head. And uh, verse 7, as we continue, again, Haman thinking about himself here. Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, on whose, the head, on whose head a royal crown is set. And let, robes, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. And let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. And let them lead him on a horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. This was Haman's dream come true. Like, he didn't want, he didn't want uh, money. He had plenty of that. He didn't want, you know, possessions that the king could have bestowed. He had plenty of that. He wanted to be paraded through the most populous part of this city, dressed like a king, in the king's attire, on the king's horse, right? For all to see. For his glory and splendor to be put on display. For him to look as good as a king before everyone. This was a dream come true. Except for it was more a nightmare than a dream, which leads us to scene number three. Scene number three, we see an insult, our insult, for the sinister schemer. Scene three, an insult for the sinister schemer. Look at, uh, as we continue in the text, it says, Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and take the horse. You would think at this point Haman would start to be like, huh? Right? Like when he orders Haman to take the robe, like not for somebody to take the robes and horse for Haman, but for Haman to be the one taking the robes. You can imagine probably that smile going to a frown at that point. Like, Haman, why don't you do that? Why don't you go get the robes and the horse? Then as the text continues, it says, And as you've said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Just in case you don't know which Mordecai I'm talking about, he's the one at the, the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you've mentioned. Do it exactly as you said, Haman. Like, can you imagine, right? Like, the, the, the irony here and the look on Haman's face when he realizes for whom all these honors are actually intended. It's not Haman. It's actually the person that Haman was headed there to see killed. Like, the, the irony in this text is so thick and rich. It is incredible. I, I picture Haman's face and, and his attitude, sort of like that scene from Wizard of Oz, if you, if you remember that, that movie. When, uh, when Dorothy's trying to help the scarecrow, who the, the wicked witch uh, has set on fire, and, and, and Dorothy grabs that bucket of water that's 
by the way, just conveniently there, right? I don't know why there's a bucket of water there, but it was, and it's exactly what she needed at the moment. It moves the film along, so she grabs it, she throws it on the scarecrow, and instead, I mean, she hits the scarecrow, which helps him out, but the bigger thing is, it lands on the Wicked Witch, and she begins to melt. And you remember what she says as she's melting? She's, I'm melting, melting, ah, she's melting. And then she says this, she says, uh, uh, what a world, what a world. Who would have thought that a good little girl like you could have destroyed my beautiful wickedness? I feel like that's going on in Haman at this very moment. He's like, no, it was so perfect. It was a dream. It was the, the best thing he could have ever imagined. And now his beautiful wickedness is thwarted. And more than that, he's got to go parade Mordecai around the city. The honors that he treasured most in the world, his heart's desire, the, the greatest idol in his life is about to be bestowed on his worst enemy, Mordecai the Jew. What a thought. What a thought. And, just to remind you, that's why he was going to the king in the first place, because he wanted to kill this very same guy. And so, verse 11, we continue, we see it's exactly what happened. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai, and he led him through the city square, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. What a world, what a world, that a good little boy like Mordecai would destroy all of him in uh, terrible wickedness. His words came back to haunt him. Like, think about it. Think about that phrase. Like, the, the exact words that he told the king should be said for the man that he wants to honor. Those very same words probably tasted like mud as he said them all day long, parading Mordecai around the city square. His daydream turned into a nightmare real quickly. Well, at the end of the day, the two men parted. That's what we see in verse 12. Mordecai returned to the king's gate. Seems to be unaffected by the events of the day. It seems like he just goes about his business. He doesn't go home. He goes back to the gate, right? He goes back to his place of work. It's like, hey, this is great. It's great that you wanted to honor me, but honor is not going to get the job done. I've still got a job to do. I've got to go finish my duties. And the exact opposite seems to be true for Haman. Verse 12 continues. Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. A sign of humility and grief, like agony. The tables had turned, right? And this, this is another irony that we see in the text. Earlier it was the Jews who were mourning with sackcloth and ashes. Now it's Haman and things have shifted dramatically. An incredible reversal in our text. And he didn't find any comfort when he got home. If you continue, his wife and friends, who remember, gave him the terrible advice to kill Mordecai. They now become theological truth-tellers. I mean, they're, they're, they're hitting the nail on the head with what they say next in, in verse 13. So people that got it so wrong last week now actually have truth. It, 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 and it's true what they say. Look at verse 13. It says, And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you've begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him but will surely fall before him. Now that this fall has started, Haman, it will inevitably continue. It will be your demise. And when we read the Bible, we shouldn't turn off our brains, right? Like when, when, when I'm reading this and I'm thinking, which we should be doing as we're reading scriptures, maybe you saw this too, but I'm, I'm thinking about Haman's perspective here. Like as he hears this information, I'm, I'm like, hey woman, like what are you... Why are you telling me this now? Right? Like, if you knew all of this, why didn't you tell me this yesterday? Like, you, you knew he was a Jew. And now you're telling me that if I oppose the Jewish people, it's going to mean my demise? Like, why didn't you tell me that yesterday instead of telling me to kill the guy? Or better yet, why didn't you tell me that, you know, days ago when I decided to have this death decree written for the entire Jewish people to be annihilated? I think that information would have been good then, not now. 
Nonetheless, though, there's no change in his heart. There's no repentance. You maybe think that there would be repentance, but there is none. Instead, and maybe as a result, people show up at his door to bring him now to the feast. The feast that he wanted to have Mordecai killed so that he could enjoy. There's a knock on the door. Verse 14. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. And so ends our text for today. Those are the three scenes. There's no repentance. There's no change of heart. There's just a man in his pride who's been humiliated. And those are the scenes. What about application here? God's word, as we know, is profitable. All of God's word is profitable for our instruction, for our training in righteousness. And so how do we take a text like this, story of of Haman and Mordecai and, and, and this incredible reversal that we've seen, how do we draw out application in this text that we would live out today as Christ followers living in the world that we live in in the day and age that we live in? Well, I'll give you three this morning, three points of application, marching orders for us as the people of God. Number one. See the invisible hand of God changing the course of history. See the invisible hand of God changing the course of history. Now, when I say that, it sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? See the invisible. That in itself doesn't sound like it would be possible, but it is, and you do it more than you realize. Oftentimes, uh, invisible objects leave behind visible trails, evidence of their having been there. You think about, as just an example, think about staring outside of a window, in the middle of a, of, a, of, a, of a bad storm, right? You can't see the wind. You can't feel the wind. And, and if your windows are thick enough, Lee Layfield, uh, you can't hear the wind, right? But you know it's there, right? You know it's there, and you see the trees bending. You see the leaves blowing across the yard. You, you know it's there, and you know that it's really strong. You can tell the evidence of it. And the same is true for our, our study of Esther. As we've said week after week, we don't hear God's name mentioned, The closest we have this week is a mention of the Jewish people, which we know from studying the scriptures and from knowing our Old uh, Old Testament, that is the people of God. That's God's chosen nation. But God's not evident. We don't see his name. We don't see his, his hand. Clearly, God did this. God's working this miracle. God's working in this way. We're not given that narration in the text. And yet we still see his work of providence all over it. Even so much, even so much here in the text, God's work of providence, God's hand moving the, 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 the channels of history, it's so clear that even lost pagans can't miss it in the text. Do you note that? Did you see it? Haman's wife and friends are not so dense as to write off the day's events as coincidence, right? You hear it at the end of verse 13 and 14. They realize, I mean, lost pagan Persian folks, they realize and tell Haman that all of these events must be attributed to an intervention of, of Israel's God, that Israel's God stepped in and he's doing something, right? They would have the wherewithal to know that this God, once he's involved, <laughs> the final outcome is, is never in doubt. That's what they gather. That's what they tell him. You're going to surely fall. And the pagans notice that in verse 13. Now, how they came up with that, we're not sure, we're not told. Maybe Zeresh came about that information because she knew some of Israel's history. Maybe they had heard the, the stories of the Red Sea crossing or the way that the Israelites, this group of nomadic slaves, came in and conquered Jericho, this fortified city. Maybe they heard some of those stories. We're not told. We don't know. But it's striking how quickly they put two and two together, right? Whatever they knew of Israel, the Jewish people, and Israel's God, they came to this conclusion that destiny, that fate had been sealed because there's something going on here. But what about you, friend? 
as we seek to apply this text, are you that quick? Are you that uh, ready to spot the hand of God in, in, in your life and in our world, even today? Even in the culture and the climate that we're living in right now? When there's trials and struggles and, and brokenness and heartache on every channel of news and on every platform of social media, you can't turn it on right now without seeing heartache and brokenness and, and the destruction that, that racial tensions create and racism create, the, the brokenness of, 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 of the violence going on in our own closest city. Like, you can't miss it. But even there, are we quick to acknowledge the providence of God, the sovereignty of a God who's ruling over everything and moving history along? By his good providence and by his sovereignty, he's still sovereign. His plans will not be thwarted. We should have unshakable confidence that despite all appearances around us right now, that God will act. He will bring about the salvation of his people. And this confidence should drive us to bold faith, courageous faith, especially in times like these. As it relates to the invisible hand of God, note one more thing before we move on. Because I believe this brings us courage and confidence and faith in our God Note that such a seemingly insignificant event forms the turning point for this whole story, right? If you think about the the whole story and the narrative that we've been walking through, it was not Esther's decision to stand up for God that turns the course of these events, right? She she makes that decision to go before the king and and plead the case of her people, and things continued to get worse even after that decision, right? Her decision to be bold and have faith and to to do what she should do as, as a woman of God even after that, right, was Mordecai's uh, demise on the gallows uh, created by by Zeresh and all these friends. So it just continued to get worse for God's people, even after Esther's bold faith. But beginning with chapter 6, where we're at today, and onward through the rest of this book, the enemies of God's people are on the run, and God's people are on the upswing. They're they're, uh, being blessed and moved about uh, with prosperity in this book. But it's not because of boldness. It's not because of their fearless action. Well, then what is, it, what is it a result of? Well, you saw it in the text today. It seems so insignificant. One sleepless night. One dude, an evil pagan Persian king who can't fall asleep. That's what God uses to change the course of these events. Esther's completely absent. You notice that? She's not even in this chapter. And then Mordecai, the other uh, protagonist here, he's completely passive. So passive that he's being paraded around the city on a horse. None of his own doing. But God is inevitably, he is the one that's invisibly turning things around and restoring his people in this text. And he uses something as insignificant as a sleepless night. If God can do that in this text... How much more can you use the things in your life that you think every day are so insignificant, so mundane, so everyday things to turn the course of your day, to turn the course of your week or year or life? And that isn't to say, I want to be careful to say, that isn't to say that our our action or faith, our courage is unimportant. They are important. They're commanded, in fact. And we'll see Esther in the weeks ahead uh, ahead continue to be courageous and full of faith and bold. And we, we should be because we've been called to be. But God's sovereign purposes, listen to me carefully, God's sovereign purposes work through his servants. They do not depend upon his servants. I think so often we see ourselves as the key, the linchpin in God's plan through history. It's not that way. He works through us, and we should be delighted. We should have joy that God would use us in his sovereign plans, but his plans don't depend upon us. God's dependent upon no one. Rather, the way that we should think about this is that God delights to use our faithful, willing obedience for his sovereign purposes. Let's continue. Second point of application here in the text. 
see the reality that every knee will bow. Every knee will bow. And you may wonder, where do we see that in the text? Let me show you how we get there. The passage is a warning for us. It's a warning for all people, but especially for those that will not bow their knee to our great God, right? Haman seemed to have it all, right? He had money, power, fame, position, and yet in the space of 24 hours, he's going to be disgraced and then dead. Nothing's going to be able to thwart that. You may ask, well, how could that happen? Well, his wife and his friends are correct. It was because he had chosen to attack God's people and the nation of Israel, Let me show you how that connects. Go back to, you don't have to go there physically, you you can if you want. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, God makes a promise. God makes a promise to Abraham way back in the first book of the Bible, I will bless those who bless you, and, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So, in other words, to oppose the Jews, to oppose Israel, was to make oneself an enemy of God himself. Now, why in the world would I bring that up this morning? Because I want to connect some dots for you. If God made that promise in Genesis 12, and he's carrying it out here in Esther, this is a place where we've seen promise and fulfillment of promise in the Old Testament. God said, I'll do this. Here he is doing it. Let me remind you, God makes another promise that has similar sounds, but very similar outcomes in Romans chapter 14, verse 10 and 11 in the New Testament. This is what the word of God says. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Did you hear that? I think about what's going on in our world and I think about a text like this and it it strikes fear into my heart that every soul, every person that ever has, has drawn breath will stand before God, according to Romans 14, and will give an account of every action and deed and every rejection of Christ. So let me put these side by side for you. If he promised judgment in Genesis 12 and he carries it out in Esther, what makes you think that when he promises it in, in Romans 14 that he's not going to carry it out at the end of time for you and for me? And that should bring us to our knees. You have a choice right now to bow, to bow your knee to this king. But on that day, there will be no choice. You will bow. You will bow. Let me also show you here in the text. Like Haman, you could be here today and think, I'm young. I've got plenty of life before me. I'm just fine. I'm comfortable. I have everything that I need. Life is a party, and I'm just here for it. But also, like Haman, your life could be required of you in less than 24 hours. And if that's the case, I pray it's not. I pray it's not. But if that's the case... If that were you, and your life were to be required within 24 hours, what would you say when standing before this king? Who has said in Romans 14, you will give an account, and your knee will bow. It should cause us to have great humility and cling to the cross of Christ. Our knees will bow. As you're thinking about that question, though, I don't want to leave us there, because that's not a very hope-filled idea. But where we also go in this text is full of hope. And it's our third point of application. See the man whom the true king delights to honor. See the man whom the true king delights to honor. That's the line that Xerxes uses in verse 6 when he says to Haman, Hey, uh, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? What should be done for him? Well, it should cause you when you hear that kind of language to think about another. (laughs) Whom the true king, the king of all the universe, delights to honor. And his name is Jesus the Christ. 
And one day, Jesus will be the head of a great victory parade. And one day, he will be leading his enemies behind him. And one day, every knee, as we've read in Romans 14, will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. So why would, why would we not bow to him now? Because of the great love that he's shown us? We who were the enemies of God, we who were like Haman, doomed because of our own decisions, right? Like that's the connection in the text for us. We are Haman, that because of our own idolatry and decisions, we've brought destruction, doom, eternal damnation upon us. And yet we who are enemies of God can be adopted into the family of God through Christ. How incredible this grace is. How is that possible? How is that possible? We also get that answer by comparing with Mordecai. And this is just incredible in the text. I just want to walk us through this and show you how in Mordecai, in this scene, in the town square, in the city square, we see foreshadowing of Jesus' death, but we also see foreshadowing of Jesus' glorious triumph. Watch this in the text. Here's what I mean. Look, Mordecai's dressed in royal robes, literally the robes of the king. Jesus, if I can remind you, went to the cross stripped of his clothes, publicly shamed, but... That's not the way he's staying. Jesus will come again wearing royal robes that Revelation tells us will be as white as lightning. What a glorious image. Mordecai was paraded around. He was mounted on a royal horse. In contrast, Jesus walked. And not only did he walk, he carried his cross. Under the weight of the heavy cross, he carried it all the way to Golgotha, where he collapses under the weight of it. But that's not the way he stays. Jesus will come again. And can I remind you, Revelation teaches us again that he will be riding on what? A royal horse. A royal horse. That's white in splendor. Doesn't end there, though. Mordecai was publicly uh, proclaimed. He was proclaimed publicly by his enemy as the man whom the king delights to honor. He was honored with the words of those, even his enemies, in the city square. Jesus was ridiculed every step of his way to Calvary. I can remind you, the Roman soldiers were yelling, Hail, King of the Jews, and mocking him. The crowd yelled, Crucify him, as they called for his execution. The chief priests and scribes, they, they let him, uh, cried out and screamed in, in mockery, let him, let him come down from the cross and we'll believe that he's God. Let him, let him take himself, remove himself from the cross. And we'll mockery and shame is all that Jesus heard. But that's not the way it'll end. Jesus was ridiculed every step of the way, but Jesus is coming back. And as Romans 14 teaches us, every knee will bow on that day. And as we learn from Scripture, everyone will confess that he is Lord. That's what they'll be saying. That's what the crowds will say on that day. It won't be mockery and shame. It'll be he is Lord. So how should we respond? Well, Haman unwillingly declared Mordecai's honor. He was forced by this king to praise his enemy. And so also on that day, there will be some who will unwillingly be forced. Their knee will bow and they will proclaim him as king. But for those of us who've been born again, for those of us who are his people, it should be our heart's desire. It should be the joy of our lives to sing his praises, to declare his goodness, to give thanks for the Lamb of God that was slain for us. This is the response that you would bow your knee to him now, that you would bow your heart to him daily and exalt Christ and it, and it be your joy to obey and follow him daily. That's the response to this king. And so if you're stuck in an Esther 5 sort of moment in your life, right? Like remind you last week, there's death coming from every angle. There's destruction coming in month 12. There's death coming from, from Haman, from Mordecai at least, the next day. So if you're stuck in a moment like that, 
and you feel like there is just from every side of you, there is schemes or plans for your own demise, you're growing tired of, of, of the weariness of life right now, for whatever reason or circumstance, look to the excellency of Christ. Look to this king who traded places with you and died your death on a cross and then exalt this Christ in your heart, trusting firmly in the promises of God, the providence of God to do what is good and right for your soul. How in the world could you be hopeless? Why be filled with doubts and fears? Why be uh, filled with, with fears for your future or the future of your kids or your finances or your health? God can use a sleepless night in a pagan king's life to turn a nation's destiny and future. How much more can he change your life? Son or daughter of Christ. One that's been born again and washed in the blood of his son. Pray that you would know this king. Pray that you would yield your life to him. I want to pray for us, and then I have a, a few announcements and we'll be dismissed. Let's pray together. King Jesus, we do come before you this morning with incredible humility and gratitude that you were treated with mockery and shame. You were stripped. You were publicly ridiculed. You bore the weight of the cross on our behalf. That that was ours, and you took it. King Jesus, help us to never, never lose sight of the gospel and get over the joy of our salvation. And as we await your glorious return, will you, when you will come in splendor and make all things right and glorious and good and whole, Help us to serve you faithfully now in obedience. Help us to walk humbly before you. Help us to act justly and to love mercy. God, give us confidence and courage to follow you even through hard things, even through difficult things that you're calling us to. Help us to see your providence and let that bolster our courage and confidence. God, how we pray for our country. And we pray for the division we pray for people who are afraid right now, whether it's a silly sickness or it's the sickness of racism, that people would be fearful. God, we pray that you would be with them and that we would not diminish their genuine fear and anxiety in this, this climate and culture that we live in right now. How do we pray for, for police officers and first responders that are having to respond in a climate like this and put their lives at risk because of injustice and foolishness and, and rioting and violence. And God, if we can't have our hearts broken for our nation in a time like this, God, I think we've grown hard and cold. So God, would you, would you act? Would you do what we can't do? As we've seen you in the text of Esther, change the course of history, would you do it again? Not, God, so we can live in some utopian society. We know that's not going to happen here on this planet or in this nation. But, God, so that hearts and lives can be brought to Christ and repent and find eternal life where there will be joy and unending paradise. God, help us to stand and be a voice for those that were created in the image of God. Whether it's the womb or whether it's our brother and sister that's found themselves on the other side of injustice. I pray we wouldn't be silent. God, would you move us to action this week in our jobs and our workplaces, help us to be a voice for the gospel, first and foremost, to proclaim the good news and excellencies of Christ. We'll give you ourselves and we'll give you this church and pray that you'd be glorified in both. In Christ's name I pray, amen.
a few announcements for you, and, and uh, we'll be dismissed. Um, let me just remind you guys of, of, of giving. Um, praise the Lord if you guys are on social media or, or the church messaging system, you saw this, but um, you gave faithfully, and Lamino Town Baptist Church uh, was able to minister to the community in Lamino Town, and we talked yesterday on a Skype call with Pastor Hillary, and these were his literal exact words. Uh, I'm going to mess it up because there's a little bit of broken English in it, but uh, you, you made us to survive. You fed a community of people in the midst of this pandemic such that they were able to survive. And so I don't want to discredit that. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you for that. Uh, those are our brothers and sisters in Christ, and they were going hungry in a way that we were not. And, and you stepped up and gave in generosity. The other side of that is, though, that we saw almost an exact uh, decrease in our church giving when the increase to Lamino Town giving went up. And so I just say, to, I just say that to encourage you to continue to give faithfully tithes here at Poplar Spring. Um, budget needs and those sorts of things are still on the table, even in the midst of a pandemic. So that's why you see some buckets at the, at the entrance and exits. Uh, you can give that way. We don't want to pass the plates because it's germy, apparently. And, uh, and so uh, you can do it. You can give that way. You can give online. You can mail it to the church, um, but, but continue to give. The other thing uh, in, the, in our church year that we've almost lost sight of because of this whole thing is that it's deacon election time. Uh, imagine that, like <laughs> that we're already at that point in our year, but uh, be praying about that. At June 21st, um, the three weeks from, from this day, we're planning to do that election. Um, and so be praying who you would nominate, uh, and then go speak to them. That's the other part that we pray about it, and maybe or maybe not pray about it, and then just look up in the service and be like, oh, he'd be good, and write him down. Don't do that. That's not the way to do this. Go and talk to someone and, and, and ask them, would you be willing to serve? Uh, are you qualified? Do you, you, do you meet the qualifications that we see in First Timothy? And so uh, do that and, and pray about that as we approach that um, election on June 21st. Um, still working out how we're going to vote, but, but it will happen. So, yeah, we're, yeah, we're not sure. There's pins in the pews. If, we, if we're uh, against passing things still June 21st, yeah, write it on a piece of gum wrapper or something and stick it in the offering plate. Uh, and then the last thing, uh, June 14th, so the week before that, is when we're going to honor some graduates. And so I just remind you, if you have graduated or if you have a graduate in your family, college, high school, doesn't matter, um, let us know because we want to recognize them on June 14th. So, and uh, yeah, I think, I, think that's, uh, I think that's it for announcements. I don't have anything else. So uh, go this week and, and live for King Jesus, and that we go in grace and peace and be a light in a, in a, in a dark time in our nation. I love you guys. You're dismissed.